Well, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, was once asked if she had ever considered divorce during the course of their long marriage. And her humorous response was, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. <laughs> well, today, we are looking at the sixth of God's Ten Commandments. And the sixth commandment is short, it's simple, it is easy to remember. It is just four words in English, two words in the original Hebrew. And you know them well. You shall not murder. Among the group that was here several weeks ago when we took time to write out as many of God's Ten Commandments as we could remember, the Sixth Commandment was the one that was most frequently remembered. Eighty-five percent of you had it on your lists. But a short and as simple and as easy to remember as the Sixth Commandment is, it has monumental implications for those who seek to honor God through their loving obedience of his commandments. Commandments 6 through 10 show us how we are to serve God by fulfilling our responsibilities to our neighbors as we work to safeguard the sanctity of life and the quality of human relationships. Commandments 6 through 10 are in something of a descending hierarchy. Commandment 6 seeks to secure life. Commandment 7 defends the purity of marriage. Commandment 8 protects private property from invasion and attack. And then proceeding from what we do to how we think and how we act, the remaining two commandments forbid lying and coveting. Our responsibility to our fellow human beings is grounded entirely in our relationship with our Creator God. The first five commandments are foundational for the five that follow. If you take those five away and everything that follows is up for grabs, it's subject to revision, it's subject to redefinition and to reinterpretation. Only when we are rightly related to God are we enabled to flesh out the human relationships that God designs and with which he gives us as a, as a gift of his grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives believers simple, direct answers to basic Bible questions, and I often find its short summary statements to be helpful. In the Catechism, question 68 asks, what is required in the Sixth Commandment? And the answer given is, the Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. And then question 69, what is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment forbids us to take our own life or to take or un unjustly the life of our neighbor or anything tending to those ends. Now, in order for us to have the best understanding of what is required and what is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment, we need to spend a few minutes developing the distinction that we find in the Old Testament between murder and killing. I mentioned earlier that in the original Hebrew of this command, it is communicated with two words, lo ratzach. That's a good chance for me to clear my throat. Lo ratzach. The Hebrew language contains several other words that are defined by the word killing, and they're all different forms than the word ratzak. The great 
distinction between these words is that the word ratzach that God uses in the sixth commandment specifically refers to unlawful killing, the unlawful taking of human life. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Now, how can we say that? Well, Scripture defines three different types of unlawful killing, and then it also defines three types of lawful killing. I will give you a quick overview of the three types of unlawful killing that the Bible proscribes, and then sketch out for you the three types of unlawful, I'm sorry, lawful killing that Scripture not only allows, but at times prescribes. From there, we'll go back and look at some of the implications and the applications that the Sixth Commandment has to us in 2023. So the three types of unlawful killing that the Bible prohibits. First of all, there is murder. The violent, deliberate, premeditated taking of another person's life. It is described in our legal code today as homicide. I think it's fairly obvious, so we can move quickly on from murder to the next category, which is negligent death. Negligent death. Love your neighbors by keeping them safe. Put a fence around your in-ground pool. Put a railing on your deck. Don't drive under the influence of alcohol or drugs. In the Old Testament, owners of animals who had a history of killing humans were held responsible if their animals were not properly restrained. And similarly, Israelites who built a house but failed to put a protective border known as a parapet around the roof line were held guilty if someone fell off their roof. Now, that may sound kind of strange or even silly, but in a hot desert climate, people often slept on the roof of buildings to take advantage of any cool night air or breeze that there might have been. And thus, if you were a guest at someone's house and you rolled over in your sleep and you fell off the roof, the homeowner would be held liable and the penalty for his negligence would be death. The third category of unlawful killing in the Old Testament is killing the unborn. If a pregnant woman was harmed as a result of a fight breaking out in her company and if her unborn baby died because the mother was injured, the person who struck the woman was required to pay with his life. The unborn baby was viewed as a real person with a right to life and the same legal protection as the mother. So those are the three types of unlawful deaths that the Bible mentions. Now, three types of lawful deaths outlined in Scripture. The first is capital punishment. Life for life. The punishment for murder was the death penalty. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Other capital crimes in Israel included consistently or persistently disrespecting one's parents, cursing them or hitting them, violating the Sabbath, Trafficking, that is, to kidnap someone and sell them into slavery. Sorcery, sexual perversion, sacrificing to false gods, oppressing a sojourner, mistreating widows and orphans. Those were all capital crimes in Israel. 
There are times when the safety of the larger community must be protected through the execution of those who cannot function properly in society. And such decisions were not left up to individuals. Such decisions were left up to those whom God had placed in positions of authority and who's made such judgments and were accountable to God for the process. In society, God delegates his authority to punish evildoers to the civil government. Romans 13.4 makes it clear that governing authorities are God's servant for good and avenger to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So capital punishment is a form of lawful killing that is administered by the state. And understanding what the Bible calls for with respect to capital punishment can be helpful in defining how one can be pro-life with respect to protecting the life of the unborn and yet still support the proper use of the death penalty. The second category of lawful killing in Scripture is self-defense. God provides the right for homeowners to use force to protect themselves and their families from nighttime intruders. If the intruder was killed, the homeowner was not considered guilty. However, if there was a daytime break-in, lethal force was not to be used if it was determined that the burglar's motive was theft and not murder. And the third category is war. In a sin-cursed world, War is a reality, tragic reality. Peace is always the goal, but sometimes war is necessary to defend peace. The Old Testament does not prohibit war. In fact, God sends Israel into numerous battles on numerous occasions. Exodus 15.3 makes it clear that the Lord himself is known as a man of war. Psalm 1834 notes that God teaches warriors how to fight. And in a few different historical narratives in the Old Testament, God actually gives the battle plans to his generals for the battles that lie ahead. Now, in her best moments, Israel realizes that it is God who provides the victory for their battle. And there are even occasions in the Old Testament where Israel's enemies realize that to declare war against Israel is to declare war against God himself. Although war is a sad fact of life, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, will ultimately put an end to all wars. So we have three categories of unlawful killing, three categories of lawful killing, and before we move on, there is a final category which we must consider in which people are killed accidentally with no malicious intent. In his grace and in his mercy, God provides a place of asylum for such killers that are known as cities of refuge. God calls Israel to establish six such cities of refuge that are spread throughout the promised land. When someone inadvertently killed someone, say, for instance, they're using an axe, and the axe head flies off, hits someone in the head, and kills them. That person can flee to a city of refuge where they are safe from the person who is known as the avenger of blood, usually a family member looking for justice for their deceased family member. 
and they are to stay in the city of refuge while the facts of their case are sorted out. After hearing all the evidence, the city officials in the cities of refuge would decide whether or not a person was eligible to remain within the protective borders of such cities until the death of the high priest allowed them to go free. It's worth pondering for a few moments why murder is almost universally prohibited in all societies. It is pretty likely that if you went out and did a person-on-the-street kind of an interview and you ask a hundred people if they thought that murder was wrong, that all 100 people would quickly agree, yes, murder is wrong. But if you were to ask them why murder is wrong, it might be a little slower to come up with a response. The average person might say something like, well, it just is, or it's not right. Someone might point to social order as a, as a rationale for prohibiting murder and point out that in order for society to function in a way that allows people to feel safe and to be able to flourish as human beings, people just can't go around killing one another whenever they feel like it. But what would you say? What would you say if somebody asked you, why is murder wrong? Why is it a sin? Why does God include the issue of murder among his top ten commandments? You see, the sanctity of life depends on far more than pragmatic considerations. Life is sacred because every human being is created in the image of God. Every person has an inherent worth and dignity since every life from the moment of conception is created by God to represent God. Every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Aging parents are precious. Children with special needs are precious. Kevin DeYoung writes, nonverbal children or parents, those in a wheelchair, and those who are completely dependent upon others or doctors are precious. All of life matters to God. Now, while almost no one would dispute that murder is wrong, the question of what constitutes murder is one that causes debate and division in society at large and in more recent times even in some segments of the church. Up until the last few decades, most people who label themselves as Bible-believing Christians would have taken a united stance against homicide, suicide, abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia as being contrary to God's law. But there is no longer agreement about these concerns, even within the church. It is impossible in a single message to touch on all the different facets of murder that I just listed, so we will consider a few for now. In reality, we will just barely scratch the surface on these. So the first is suicide. And some of you, Linda and myself included, have experienced the pain that is caused by the tragic choice family members make to end their own lives. Suicide is a sin, but it is not the unforgivable sin that some 
And even some branches of the church have made it out to be over the course of church history. There may be times and there may be circumstances such as advanced cases of dementia or catastrophic brain injuries where a person loses his or her ability to make any rational choices and they take their own life without even realizing what they're doing. But in the majority of cases, those who commit suicide do so knowingly and they make a volitional choice to terminate their own life. There are five cases of suicide in scripture, Saul, Ahithophel, Zimri, Judas, and Samson. All five of those suicides occur in the context of shame and defeat. Other men like Job and Jonah and Elijah ask God to put an end to their lives, requests upon which God refuses to act. Although the suicides of famous athletes and movie stars and other entertainers often brings attention to this tragedy, such cases rarely, if ever, bring attention to the wrongness and the sinfulness of this choice. In a 2006 article entitled Life After the Suicide of a Loved One that was published in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, a woman named Julie Gossick, who suffered through the suicides of five family members, wrote, suicide is not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by an individual. This statement is neither unloving nor disrespectful. It is the truth. I dearly loved my family members that committed suicide, but their choices were sinful and not righteous. While suicide may seem like the only way out for those who are struggling with life, Scripture tells us that God will never lead us into a situation where violating his commandment is the only choice. So if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide, or you know others who are, I urge you to seek the kind of necessary professional help and counsel that is available. And at the same time, I would strongly urge you to remember or to remind and keep reminding anyone you know who is struggling with such thoughts that suicide is displeasing to God. Even if you think your life is pointless, your life is precious to God. God is the only one who has the provenance to choose when our lives in these bodies begins and ends. So moving on to the subject of abortion. Until very recently, the Christian church was universally opposed to abortion. But today there is division between people and divergence among churches with respect to the issue of abortion. Like suicide, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. But when we consider it, when we speak of it, when we think about it, when we discuss it, we must allow the Bible's teaching on this subject to shape our thinking and our speaking. We must not succumb to cultural arguments and societal pressures to equivocate on scriptural truth about the rights of the unborn. Psalm 139.13 is one of the best places that God gives us to shape our thinking about this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Couldn't be more clear. God is actively engaged in the development of the fetus. 
Calvin wrote, for the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of a mother, is already a human being. And it's almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. Life begins at conception. That is a scientific fact. The life of each of us traces back to the zygote that was formed in the split second in which we were conceived. From a physical, genetic standpoint, you have never been and you will never be anything different than you were at the moment of conception. From a spiritual standpoint, the soul that you possess was united with your body at the moment your biological life began. When your biological life begins, you exist eternally as a person made in the image of God. All human life is created to honor God, and as such, all human life deserves to be protected. Euthanasia. As is the case in the rest of the Western world, the, the number of states in the U.S. that are, uh, have enacted assisted suicide laws is escalating. There are currently nine states plus the District of Columbia that have assisted suicide laws in place. And the state legislature in Connecticut has had a so-called death with dignity bill on its docket each year since 2012. Each year it has been defeated by an increasingly small margin of votes. And 2023 is no different. And a website promoting this bill with an online petition announces that in January 2023, a group of Connecticut lawmakers introduced HB 5487. If passed, this bill would allow residents of Connecticut to access medical aid in dying. All such bills open a Pandora's box of problems. Some of them do not require the notification of or the sign-off by family members. Some don't specify what kind of doctor must diagnose you and pro provide you with the okay to proceed down this one-way path. Some bills permit you picking up the drugs at your local pharmacy and for you to administer them to yourself on your own. Of course, there are always cases in which doctors get their terminal diagnoses wrong. But all of that is aside from the biblical principles we have already held in front of ourselves this morning about God being the author of life from start to finish. Again, in Psalm 139, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, which as yet, when as yet there were none of them. So God has numbered our days, and we are not to intervene in the numbering of the days of our lives or in the days of anyone else's life. It is so ironic for our society to invest so much time and energy and resources into preventing teenage suicide and yet to encourage it in the elderly and the ill. How can we put out a different message for teens and a completely different message for elderly adults? In all ways that are open to us, we should do what we can to preserve and to protect all forms of innocent life. It's worth 
noting that the Netherlands, which was the first country to allow for assisted suicide, began a process which was originally voluntary, but now it has essentially become involuntary in that country. Now in the Netherlands, if your doctors determine that you have a terminal illness, insurance companies will no longer pay for any treatment for you because you have become a financial liability to them, to the state, and to your family. So a quick, quick word here before we leave this topic about the distinction that exists between the termination of treatment and the termination of life. Informed decisions to either not receive or to suspend the treatment of debilitating and deadly diseases is a personal choice. And it must be made between an individual and God or among the family members of one who is incapacitated to make such a choice for themselves. These are difficult and highly personal decisions and not ones in which any of us can or should sit in judgment of if someone else makes a different choice than we might make in any given situation. I would encourage all of you to discuss these matters with doctors and loved ones while you have your full faculties and to make your wishes known in writing so that others will not be forced to make agonizing choices on your behalf should you not be able to do so on your own. In conclusion, there is one other important truth about the sixth commandment that we must consider. As important as all these other aspects of murder are that we have mentioned, there is still something even bigger that is wrapped up in the words, you shall not murder. And Jesus lays that out for us in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes the teaching of the sixth commandment far deeper than we have gone, and he drives it down into the depths of every single one of our hearts. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That is a devastating indictment for all of us. These are not the Bible verses that most of us feel inclined to cut out and carry in our Bible, in our wallet or our purse. Jesus, Jesus makes it clear that in God's economy, there's no difference between a dripping knife and an angry spirit or an insulting tongue or even a juicy bit of gossip. According to Jesus, the sixth commandment covers killing with our hands, with our hearts, and with our words. God makes no distinction between bullets and bad-mouthing others. All such behavior emanates from hate-filled hearts. Murder is an issue of the heart. In the sixth commandment, God seeks to protect us from committing verbal assault. God doesn't want people walking around with knives in their backs, and God doesn't want people walking around feeling terrible because they've either been verbally assaulted or they have verbally assaulted someone else. You can kill a person with violence. You can kill a poison person by poisoning them 
with your mouth. Yes, as we were discussing downstairs a little while ago in our Sunday school class, there is such a thing as righteous anger. But more often than not, that is not the kind of anger we put on display when we speak harshly with a spouse or explode in anger at our children or even get all bent out of shape when the person in front of us is driving too slowly. Ask yourself, have I committed heart homicide this week? Have I committed verbal homicide? Have I committed mental homicide during the last week? At one time or another, all of us have been consumed by fuming or by steaming or by bubbling over with wrath. Whether anybody else sees it or not, that has gone on in all of our hearts. And if you are a person that is prone to harboring anger or bitterness or invective or insult and rage in your heart, then you are violating the sixth commandment and you, according to Jesus, are liable to face the wrath of God. Now Jesus goes on in his Sermon on the Mount to urge that we make the necessary effort to seek reconciliation in situations where this sort of unbridled, uncontrollable anger has ruptured relationships but even more than the potential that Jesus provides for restoring harmony in our human relationships, Jesus pushes the envelope even further in his Sermon on the Mount, and he calls you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Now that is a tall order for any of us. But Jesus doesn't just set the bar high drop the sixth commandment on us like a bomb, and then wish us well and leave us to accomplish what is humanly impossible? No, nothing like that at all. Think of it. The only person in human history who never violated a single one of the commandments, the only one who never committed even the most minute form of murder in his heart was murdered for angry murderers like us. Out of love for those who were his enemies, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath on behalf of those who are all too willing, ready, and able to pour out our wrath on one another. Do you remember how Jesus prays on behalf of his murderers, even as he is being murdered? Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. Jesus models how we are to keep the sixth commandment through transformed hearts. Transformed hearts that beat in time with his heart. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and be melted by his love. Look to Jesus and be cleansed by his sacrifice. Look to Jesus and be motivated by his example. May our hearts be filled with the love of Jesus. May our angry and arrogant and apathetic hearts be transformed by Christ into hearts that are broken and tender and warm and responsive and filled with compassion. May we respond with tears when we find violence and anger within us. And may our mouths be used to build up rather than tear down. Life, what a beautiful choice. Choose life.
and not death. Let's pray to God as we do business with him now. Lord, we thank you again for the fact that your word is clear. It's easy to understand, but it's far harder to apply. And we know that we are incapable of applying that word to ourselves without your divine enabling. So we pray that you would continue to teach us, Lord, how to respect and value life and to remember that all human life is created in your image. Help us to seek to maintain a holy attitude and a holy relationship with those that you've put around us. We pray that you would purge our hearts of any unrighteous anger, any bitterness, any hardness that is there that is blocking our fellowship with you and potentially putting barriers in relationships with others. We pray for the areas of sin and concern that we have considered in this particular message that are relevant to our lives today and prevalent in the society around us. We pray that you'd help us to be those who can speak truth to our friends and our neighbors, who can announce the clarity of what Jesus has done and why he has done it and what benefit it can bring. We pray that we would be continually good stewards of your message. In Jesus' name, amen.